Let's, uh, let's start our study with, uh, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you, to your word, to Matthew 18, for the words of your dear Son, and we come to ask for your special blessing as we seek to understand and as we seek to have the courage to live according to the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we are none of his. So, Father, please bless us and strengthen us and give us courage and, and strength to be obedient and to, to conform our thinking and our hearts to his thinking and his heart. For his sake. Amen. So then, Matthew 18, uh, we started uh, last time and we, we got uh, through the first 13 verses. And the theme very much is interpersonal relationships. The theme is very much forgiveness. And we saw there in Matthew 18, the Lord takes one of the little ones, little child, and says, you've got to receive this little child as you receive me. But if you cause one of these children to stumble, you will be condemned. And he says, therefore, whatever in your life may cause others to stumble, be it your own eye, will then pluck it out and cast it from you. Condemn. Condemn those parts of your lives that may lead others to stumble, uh, ahead of time, so that you don't get condemned at the last day. Don't despise these little ones, verse 10. And he, he goes on to, to say that you must receive this child into the midst. And they were sitting there in a circle, and the Lord's basically saying you've got to open your circle and accept those whom you consider are way beneath you, accept those whom you consider are totally not on your level, uh, and he caps it off by talking about the, the lost sheep. And he seems to be saying that by not accepting into the group the lost sheep or the little one, you are causing this person to stumble. And this, I said, is true to observation, that if we do not accept little ones, if you don't forgive them, if you don't uh, go look for them and pull, try and pull them back, then they are lost to the cause of the kingdom. And the Lord is saying that if you are the one who stopped them coming in, and if you're the one who will not let them in, uh, then you are really going to be condemned at the last day. That's what he's saying. And now he goes on to talk about problems in interpersonal relationships. And it's all in the same context. This is one block of teaching, and it's very thematic all the way through. And he now answers, I guess, what is the obvious objection. Okay, Jesus, you talk about radical acceptance of the little one, uh, of those who apparently are not in our group, uh, and those who think differently, etc. You, you talk about radically accepting these people, Lord, but what if they have sinned? What if they're not up to, to standard? Is that what you mean, Lord? And so the rest of the chapter is talking about that. And I would say that the summary here is the Lord is saying, yeah, I hear you, uh, but you've got to unconditionally forgive those who have sinned against you, regardless of the level of their repentance, uh, because you are such big-time sinners. And he rounds it all up with this parable about the, the two debtors. Well, that's a summary, as I see it, of this, uh, of this chapter. Now, of course, there are... Uh, there is the section here about uh, if your brother sins against you, then go and sort it out with him. And if you don't uh, figure it out, then take someone else. And if that doesn't work out, then kick him out of the church. And I'm going to suggest that the Lord is not actually teaching that, that that is sandwiched in between all this teaching about radical grace and acceptance. And I think he's alluding there to the practice of the synagogue. But we'll... Uh, We'll maybe come to that um, a bit later. So he says in verse 15, If your brother shall sin against you, uh, sorry, yeah, if your brother shall, shall sin against you, uh, go and tell this fault between you and him alone. <clears throat> Now, notice that he says, um, between you and him alone. That is terribly difficult in practice to do. And he says, go and tell him his fault. So it's as if he's saying, not in the heat of the moment, 
but after this trespass has occurred, then go and tell him this, uh, this fault. And that, that's very difficult to do. To do that alone, it's so much easier to gossip about it to other people uh, than to actually go directly to, uh, to, to, to the person concerned. Now, he, he goes on, uh, or Peter goes on, verse 21, and how often shall my brother sin against me? It's the same word for trespass. And I forgive him until seven times. And the Lord says, no, 70 times seven. Seven being a number of uh, completion. I think the Lord is saying unlimited number of times. Now, this appears to be intention, does it not? But the Lord says, look, if your brother sins against you, go and sort it out with him. And if you don't get anywhere, then chuck him out of your church. And then him telling Peter, if your brother sins against you, 70 times 7, forgiveness. Now in Luke's record, in Luke 17, it says that if that is to occur each day, not just 7 times a day, but 70 times 7, 490 times if you want to be legalistic, but I think the picture really is unlimited number of times per day. In other words, if really, literally 70 times, seven uh, times, the guy sins against you, says, I'll oh, forgive me, and you, you forgive him. What's clear is his repentance is not sincere. There are issues with the quality of his repentance, and the Lord says you've still got to do it. Now, how do you compare that with verse 15? If your brother sins against you, then go through this procedure. I, I don't really think the two can be reconciled. I think... The Lord is speaking from verse 15 uh, down to uh, 17. I think he's alluding here to synagogue discipline. And I think uh, it's been fairly shown that he's actually quoting here, or alluding, not quoting, but alluding to a number of the Qumran documents, uh, the rule of the community particularly, which basically says exactly the same. And the similarities, and you can see in my notes, um, you can see the actual references, the similarities in language are too close for this to be chance. The Lord is definitely alluding, it seems to me, to these, uh, the, the rule of the community and also stuff out of the, the Damascus document, it, all to do with, with the Qumran community. And the Lord is saying, uh, well, yeah, uh, is this the way that you want to go on? This is how you can deal with sin against you, but, I suggest, go for unlimited forgiveness. Now, I think you could uh, legitimately translate all this, particularly in verse 17. If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church, but if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto you as a heathen man and publican. You could put a question mark at the end of each clause. I know <clears throat> in the English it may not... That may not seem that legitimate, but I really believe you could in the, in the Greek. As if the Lord is saying, and if he shall neglect to hear you, so you tell it to the church, question mark. And if he neglect to hear the church, you let him be to you as a Gentile and a publican, question mark. It's all very tongue-in-cheek. And, of course, how did Jesus treat the Gentiles and the publicans? Well, we know that the Jews hated him because he fellowshiped with the Gentiles. He broke his bread with them. And publicans, well, who's writing this gospel, humanly speaking? It's Matthew the publican. Levi's, his other name was. And, you know, the Jews come to Jesus and say, what are you doing? You and your disciples, you're eating with publicans and sinners. So the Lord's attitude to Gentiles and publicans was to fellowship them. So why does he say here, well, chuck him out of your church and let him be as a Gentile and publican to you? As if to say, you know, he's out of the community. Well, it's because he's alluding to what they were doing in synagogue discipline. And, of course, his way was different. And this would answer the difficulty that whoever interprets this passage has when you come to 17 and you read the word ecclesia, tell it unto the ecclesia, unto the church. You think, eh, but the church was not existing then. And yet he writes here as if, as you know, you know this is the way to do it. Um, and if he neglects to, to hear them, tell it unto the church, and then let him be as a Gentile and a publican. Well, the implication is that the church is already then in existence. Well, it wasn't. 
At that time, there was only the synagogue. And early Christianity began as a sect within Judaism, and they were still attending the synagogue. Well, I suggest then uh, that the way to overcome that difficulty in interpreting this word church or ecclesia is to understand it really as another uh, name for the synagogue. And if you look in my notes uh, on Matthew 18, you'll see a number of uh, reasons that I give uh, from the classical writings, uh, writings of the time uh, where I think that's the case. For example, uh, Josephus, he uses uh, ecclesia and synagogue uh, interchangeably. He will actually take, uh, he will quote, Old Testament passages from the Septuagint, the Greek translation where ecclesia is used, and he will talk about synagogue and the other way round. So you have to look at my notes to see that. And you've got James 2 verse 2 where the word is actually used uh, about the ecclesia. If they come into your synagogue, a man who, who's got beautiful clothing, etc. So clearly, synagogue and ecclesia are related. And so I don't think this is a reference to the church, as in the ecclesia of Christ. I think it's a, uh, a reference to the, the synagogue and the synagogue disciplinary uh, process. And I think it's very, very uh, tongue-in-cheek. And the Lord is saying, look, my way is above this. This is your way of rejecting the little one, uh, etc., of putting a, a fence around, uh, around the, the people of God, but I, I suggest to you that that is, that is not the case. Now, he then uh, talks about uh, take two or three witnesses with you. Verse 16, and establish every word. Well, he's clearly alluding here to how somebody could not be executed under the law of Moses without two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, 19, 15. And surely the Lord is not saying that disfellowship uh, within the, uh, from the, the Church of Christ is the same as killing uh, judicial murder under the law of Moses, where you needed two or three witnesses and then you could get somebody murdered. Surely the Lord is not saying that that's how you should behave all because somebody sinned against you. Surely this is all very tongue-in-cheek that he's saying, yeah, this is how the synagogue goes on. But what I want you to do is to forgive unconditionally. I mean, surely it cannot be that if you sin against me or I sin against you, oh, okay, so now let's get two or three witnesses together and let's, uh, let's go and go through effectively... What the, uh, what the old covenant had as uh, a trial for murder, uh, and then uh, it, you, you're going to be murdered. You'll be cut off from the community, that is, you'll be judicially stoned to death, judicially murdered. That surely is not the Lord's teaching, because he goes on to say, when Peter says, well, how often shall I forgive my brother? He says, look, Pete, 70 times 7. So it, it, the, the two things are in tension here, and it, it's tragic that so many Christian groups, including our own community, have taken these verses, these three verses here, and done exactly with them what the Lord doesn't want you to do. And to say, okay, we're going to follow these three verses to the letter. One, two, out. As uh, an editor of the Christadelphian magazine said in a talk in, uh, in Brisbane uh, many years ago, one, two, out. <laughs> no, <laughs> 70 times 7 in. That's what the Lord is saying, not one, two, out. That's the, that's the way of the synagogue. Now, <clears throat> in any case, I think the Lord is playing, as I say, very tongue-in-cheek here, because he says in verse 17, uh, if he neglect to hear the church, let him be, the AV says, unto thee, as a Gentile and a... Uh, and a publican. Now, he specifically says, you in the singular. And I think he's sort of, again, tongue-in-cheek, saying, look here, if you really want to go through all this rigmarole about taking it up with someone who did something wrong to you, because you can't forgive them, it seems, you've got to drag them through all this business, um, all right, uh, at the end of it, so he's unto you. You singular. 
as a Gentile and a publican. On that point, he is changing the uh, text from the Damascus document and from the uh, rule of the community uh, in the uh, Qumran group, uh, and he's changing this where, of course, they, they have it in the U plural, and he's making it singular. So, as I say, my idea really is that uh, you could put a question mark at the end of every clause here. And he, he does go on to say, verse 18, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the idea of binding is very much associated with condemnation, binding uh, the, the tares, binding the servant who sinned and thrown them into the the uh, figurative fire of condemnation. And I think what he's saying is, don't be too hasty in what you do in, in terms of disciplining others and in terms of breaking off with others because, you know what, it can have an eternal effect. Now that is not to say that because someone is in fellowship in an ecclesia, they're in fellowship with God, and because they're out of fellowship with an ecclesia, they're out of fellowship with God. That's how it's been, of course, twisted by the Catholics and by the uh, extremos of our own community. Uh, that, that, that's nonsense. Uh, it cannot be that abracadabra, I disfellowship you, so you're out with God. Uh, that, that, that obviously can't be the case. And yet what does he mean here? Because this really seems to be saying, and I think that it goes back to what we've had earlier in this chapter about offense, where he basically says, if you don't have the little child, if you don't accept the little child amongst you, you're going to make him stumble out of the way to the kingdom. I think it does so often happen that when someone is chucked out uh, of their Christian association, that very often that person stumbles. And I think the Lord is saying, look, there is, in a funny sense, uh, a binding and loosing eternally that goes on as a result, as a result of your attitudes on these points. Now, these words binding and loosing are uh, often used in the New Testament for binding somebody in prison or for releasing somebody from prison. And in a sense it is in our power to do that because He's repeating here what he said really to Peter personally in Matthew 16 verse 19 that you have the keys of the kingdom of heaven and what you lock is locked and what you open is opened. And it doesn't mean that you know, Peter had the, the power over you know, people's individual destiny. I think what it's saying is that if you preach the gospel to somebody you can open the kingdom to them. But if you don't, you effectively by your, if you like, sin of omission of teaching on the gospel, you have closed up the kingdom to them. And what you learn from that is that God will not come rushing in there to kind of bail people out. That, okay, well, I didn't share the gospel with, with you over there, so therefore God is going to come rushing in and, and somehow get the gospel to that person. If I messed up with that person, if I dropped the baton then it's quite possible that the baton was dropped forever. Because otherwise, what are we? We're just little puppets. Uh, and yet God has delegated his work to us. And the fact he has delegated his work to us means there is the real possibility that we can trade the talents and get more for him, or do nothing with them, and his work suffers. And that, I think, is the, the power of the gospel in human hands, that we have the power to take that message to people or not. The keys, as Matthew 16 says, are in our hands. Well, it says, if two of you, verse 19, shall agree on earth as touching anything, it shall be done for them. Well, the, the two there have surely got to be connected with the two or three witnesses in verse 16, and then uh, going further uh, to verse 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm in the midst of them. The two or three witnesses has surely got to be connected with the two or three gathered in my name, and also with the two, I know it doesn't say two or three, but a the, the two of you that shall agree on earth as touching anything, that it will be given you. 
Well, this is no blank check. This is not saying you can ask whatever you want and you'll get it. Um, like me as a kid shutting my eyes saying, Dear God, next time I open my eyes, may I see a five-pound note on the carpet? And I'll tell you, it wasn't because I didn't believe. I was a believer. Uh, but, it, <laughs> but I didn't get any five quid. Uh, my, my point is that uh, it's not a blank check. In any of these passages that talk about you get what you want, there's always a context and I wondered if here, although it's not immediately apparent, but I wonder, therefore, if the context here is asking for others' salvation. Because in 1 John 5, 14 to 16, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If any man sees his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and God shall give him, that is the, pr- the person praying, life. That is life for the other person you're praying for, for them that sin not unto death. So the asking and receiving, I think, is for the salvation of others. And so the Lord is turning it all around and saying, yes, in the synagogue discipline system, take two or three witnesses, like as I say, the editor of the Christadelphian said, one, two, out, uh, when the Lord is saying, no, 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 70 times seven, 490 times a day in. Um, I think what the, the Lord is saying here is, yeah, you can take your two or three witnesses, according to the uh, synagogue tradition. But what I'm telling you is instead, when you two or three are together, ask, ask for the salvation of that little one and you will get it. And he is again uh, referring here to to Jewish teaching, where he talks about uh, the the two or three gather together, because this is right out of the, the Mishnah and uh, Aboth, Mishnah Aboth, uh, and you can see that the reference in, in my notes, uh, where if two or three come together and study Torah, the divine presence, that is the Shekinah, is the idea, uh, rests between them. So the Lord is saying, look, when you two or three come together and you pray for the salvation of that little one, of that lost one, of that one who is despised in terms of the earlier teaching in Matthew 18, the one who's gone, got lost from the flock, you know, then the, the Shekinah, the glory of God, is amongst you. And he says, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the middle of you. I am the Shekinah. I am the glory of the covenant. And insofar as you come together to save and to forgive the last, I am there amongst you. So don't take your two or three witnesses and do some legalistic interview with a bloke and kick him out of your church. No, gather together in my name uh, and, and seek to save him and show grace to him and there I am as the glory of God in the midst of you. And when he says where two or three of you are gathered together, he uses this word, literally, synagogue. It's as if he's saying that, look, uh, in the new synagogue that I'm creating, in this new Israel that I'm setting up, this is how it is to be done. And we, we spoke about that last, last time, about how the Lord is setting up a new Israel, comprised not of, not of Levitical priests, but of, of secular fishermen, prostitutes, uh, and the dregs of society, generally poor people, etc., people on the edge. And he's making this new Israel. And he's saying, look, you two or three who come together in my name to pray for another person who's gone lost, etc., you are the synagogue. You are the new community. Well, then Peter comes in and says, Lord, well, how often? Um, I say, Luke 17 says, uh, per day. How often should I forgive him? Till seven times per day. And the Lord says, not seven times a day, but 77s. And I've said that, you know, this goes back to verse 15. If your brother should trespass against you, then go through this procedure. And yet the Lord is saying, now look, forgive unconditionally. Now, seven times, uh, what what does he mean uh, by that? Well, he says actually until seven times. I've shown elsewhere that Peter was really a Bible student, an amateur Bible student, but he was. 
a Bible student. And in so many of his allusions uh, and his writings and his words, he's alluding all the time to Old Testament scripture. You see my book on uh, Paul and Peter. Uh, you, you see page after page, chapter after chapter, rather boringly going through this theme. But just take it from me for the minute that, uh, that Peter really was into the Old Testament scriptures. So I don't think it is a kind of chance that he's actually alluding here, or quoting here actually, from the Septuagint of Daniel 4 verse 23, where Nebuchadnezzar was to be punished until seven times passed over him. And he uses that phrase here, very same phrase, until seven times. And Jesus then replies to him on the same kind of level, like he does in the dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well. She talks in a certain figurative way, and he responds on that same level. And that's very often how he does it. And he, he's doing the same here. Daniel, uh, Peter makes this allusion to Daniel 4, 23, until seven times. And maybe implying, well, you know, until they get the point, until they learn from my, my discipline of them. And the Lord says, nah, 77s. Well, where do you get 77s? The only place you meet 77s in the Bible is in the, the words of Daniel 9 where you again got the 77s or the 70 weeks uh, as it's called but uh, the prophecy is literally the 77s what's going on here seven times passed over Nebuchadnezzar to bring him to repentance and to punish him 77s passed over Israel or Judah I should say because they had sinned actually against God far more than Nebuchadnezzar. So I think that the Lord is saying, um, no Peter, don't forgive people till seven times as much as God did that Gentile king Nebuchadnezzar, but actually as much as God forgave Israel, who are far worse than him, an infinite amount, 70 times more than that. Now, I'll come back to that idea a, a little bit later. So just bear that in mind, that seven until seven times is out of Daniel 4.23 about Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 23 then, then, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like to a king which will take account of his servants. Now that little word therefore is key, because the, the subsequent parable that we've got here about the two debtors is then uh, connected with this whole idea of huge uh, forgiveness of people, 70 times 7, Luke 17, per day, uh, without paying attention then to the sincerity of their repentance. Now, if somebody really does sin against you and they come to you right on the carpet, you know, like, I'm so sorry, yeah, it's not difficult to forgive them, quite honestly, it's not a big ask. Uh, and even in the secular society, it's quite common to see that sort of thing done. But to forgive those that do not repent, those who do not get it, or those whose repentance does not seem to be, to us, particularly solid, this is uh, quite a different ask. And yet that is, I think, what we're being asked to do. Now, if you accept this, this is radical. This is radical. Because it totally... Uh, Liberal frees you. It gives you this, this great uh, liberty from, uh, well, I can't forgive her this, or, well, he hasn't put this right yet, and all, all this kind of thing. You're free. You're absolutely free. You've written it all off. Whatever was you holding against people or they have done to you, that's it. I'm not demanding repentance. And, and so much tension within the, the lives of individuals and particularly within uh, collective lives uh, within ecclesias, churches, uh, fellowships, etc., is all over this issue. Ah, but she's not repentant. Well, she did say that, but you see, then she went on living with him or her these days. Uh, you, you know, but all, all the tension, not worth it. Look, scribble the whole thing. And the parable that he gives, the therefore, gives you a pretty strong reason why you've got to do that. Because you are a bigger sinner than them. That's the point. And he talks about this guy who's got a debt of 10,000 talents. Well, it could just mean a, 
a very large amount of money. But this is absolutely a, 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 a massive uh, amount. It's like 100 million dinari, which is like a day's wage. The annual income of Herod the Great was estimated at 900 talents a year. And yet this guy owes 10,000 talents. The whole of Galilee and Perea in 4 BC paid 200 talents a year in taxes. That's one-fiftieth of this 10,000 talents. This is a massive amount. Now, how did he get there? How did he get to a 10,000 talent debt? Well, there's two options. One is that he stole it. The other is that this king was exceptionally uh, soft to him and kept on giving him loans, big ones. And he kept on and on and on loaning to him. This is the element of unreality in the story. How on earth did this guy get into such a debt? How? Basically, because the, his king kept on and on lending him money, big sums. You see the point? That is the equivalent of the 70 times 7 per day. The 490 times per day, although it's not 490, the idea is just 7 is like the number of completeness, that this daily massive of debt that we have accumulated. And of course this guy, this guy who's got the 10,000 talent debt, that's you and me. Because the, the whole story twists on the issue that then he goes and gets the other fellow and says, hey, you, you owe me a hundred talents. Pay me what you owe me. So this guy with the huge debt is you and me. How do we get this huge debt? Because God is so uh, lending us money all the time. He keeps on giving us huge loans. This is the 70 times 7 forgiveness. And he's saying, look, that's what you've had. Don't mistake it. Until I really looked at this parable, I'll tell you something that used to, in my heart of hearts, on a very personal level, used to really worry me. It was this, that in the course of a day, I reckon I must ask God to forgive me for something a few times an hour. Which shows you two things about me. One, that I'm in touch with the Lord uh, every hour. Uh, all the time, really, I, I'm with him, but I also keep messing up. <laughs> and it used to worry me, but Duncan, how many times in the course of today have you asked God to forgive you? Of course, I mean, with my eyes open and all that kind of stuff, you know, not formal prayer, but oh God, please forgive me in the name of Jesus for this or for that or whatever. Yeah. And I, I used to think that was just me, but I think everyone who is spiritually minded has that same thing. And you know, how many sins you commit per day? I mean, it's all, you know, 490, 77s, you know, it's a lot. And, uh, and there's, of course, all the stuff that you don't realize. And there's the sins of omission rather than commission, so on and so forth. The point is, we are the 10,000 talent guy. And it's only by God's endless lending to us that we've got into that position. So then, this king, and he's called, in a very odd term in 23, a certain king. A certain translates anthropos, which is really a human. A human king. Of course, a king is human. Um, a certain king, and it's a very vague translation there in a lot of versions, because they don't know what to do with anthropos, but the point is that this is the king who is also human. This is the Lord Jesus. Well, he takes account. And yet, does that mean the day of judgment? Well, no, because the day of judgment in the parable is when the fellow servants come to him and say, you know what this fellow servant did to the other one? He's put him in jail. And then the king gets involved again and uh, calls him, verse 32, unto him, this is the calling unto judgment of the second coming, uh, and punishes him eternally. Now, therefore, the taking of account, in a sense, starts now. And that's how the story starts. Verse 24, he begins to reckon. So judgment day has begun. Judgment day has begun. And it's the same word used by Peter, and of course this in the first instance is addressed to Peter, 
uh, in answer to Peter's question. It's used by Peter the same word when he talks in his letters about when judgment begins, is beginning at the house of God. So the day of judgment is not some unknown entity in the future. It is starting right now. Well, this uh, man is brought under him with this, this huge debt. Now, this is very much the language taken out of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6.12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that's put in so many words in 35, if you from your heart do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. Now this is absolutely fundamental, it, it really is. This man then could not pay, verse 25. He could not pay. And that is, I guess, the, the state of the second person as well, the second servant who he grabs hold of. He also cannot pay. He just doesn't have it to pay. Now, I think that that raises an important issue in this whole thinking about forgiveness and, and, and repentance if you sin, I think it's an urban myth to think or assume that somehow the sinner can put it right. Actually, you can't. If, for example, you, you steal something from me, you steal my Bible, let's say, and then you say, okay, I, I repent, Duncan, I'm sorry, mate, here's your Bible back. Is, is everything good now? No, it's not. You stole my Bible when I wasn't looking, and you stole what's very personal to me with all my notes in it. You know, and okay, so you repented, you got busted, you gave it back to me. But actually, no, you can't actually put it right by giving me the Bible back. And sin in that sense cannot be repaid. The only way forward is that the person who's been sinned against says, I scribble it, I forget it, I, I forgive you. Because actually the person who has sinned cannot put it right, cannot repay. And so the whole talk about, uh, we'll forgive you if you repent, well actually, you can't really, in that sense, put sin right. All that can be done is that the one sinned against can forgive. And that, I think, raises the whole issue again about this business about sincerity of repentance. That actually, no matter how sincere the repentance is, no matter how sincerely you write to me in a letter and say, Dear Brother Duncan, I am so honestly sorry for stealing your Bible. Every word may be absolutely sincere. You may sincerely believe this. But you can't put it right to the end. All I can do is to forgive you or not. And that then is my choice. So the whole issue is saying, ah, but we, we need to see you repentant. Well, you, 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 what do you want to see, a letter? A statement? This is how churches and ecclesiastes operate, are you? If you write a letter and say you're sorry, then we'll, we'll let you back in. This is a lot of nonsense. That, that, that does not indicate they've repented. That's just a letter. Uh, and you can't judge. You don't know whether they're repentant or not. So to say, ah, yeah, well, we forgive them because they're repentant. You don't know that they're repentant. You don't know the state of someone else's heart. So to say, ah, oh, yeah, we forgive you because you're repentant, it's a nonsense, it's a fiction, because you cannot judge another's heart. You don't know what's going on in their heart. What you can do is to forgive unconditionally because you are such a huge sinner. That's what you can do. Now, you'll notice that uh, he can, the king commands him to be sold and his wife and children... Peter had a wife, 1 Corinthians 9.5, and he had at least one child. Marcus, my son, 1 Peter 5.13. So, uh, and the way uh, the uh, servant falls down before the king, this is just what we saw in Matthew 17, verse 6. Peter, the same word, has just fallen down, worshipping the Lord Jesus. So it's very much aimed at Peter. So the, the king says... Uh, you must be sold, that is, into slavery. That is, you've been my servant, but I'm going to sell you to someone else. I don't want you to be my servant anymore. I'm going to sell you uh, into slavery. 
So he's clearly upset. So the fact that God forgives sin does not mean that he, he doesn't get upset about it. It's not to devalue sin. And this is the whole argument that's made about, oh yeah, if you forgive too easily, then you're sort of letting them get away with it, etc. No, that's not the case at all. He is genuinely hurt by what has been done. But really, this guy who got the debt of 10,000, well, you could see it as that the king had been very generous to him, but on a more human level, where do you get that amount of money from? Well, because you stole it. Simple as. You stole it. And the fact he doesn't have anything to give back, he has nothing to give back, and he, he's even trying to get a hundred uh, pennies out of the other guy who owes it to him, it just shows that he's not a, a very pleasant person. This person who's a, got the debt of a hundred thousand is not presented in the story as one with whom our sympathies are. He falls down before him, and really you would expect him to fall down and confess and say, please forgive me. But he doesn't say that. He says something that is frankly annoying. He says, he falls down and says, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. 10,000 talents. And I talked about what a huge sum this was. As if he's saying, yeah, look, you, you're just impatient Patience, patience, come on, a little bit of time and I'll pay it back to you. This is rubbish. He had no way of paying this back and a, a little bit of time would not have helped him to pay it back. The king really was absolutely justified as a king, this is a king we're talking about, uh, to have cut his head off, to kill him straight out. But instead he offers him a way out. He says, look, I'll sell you into slavery. Well, they're talking here in a Jewish context if you are sold into slavery, according to Exodus 21, 2 and Deuteronomy 15, at the end of seven years, you went free and the debt was cancelled. Yeah, pretty good deal that the king's offering him. He's not saying, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to have you executed, which you could have done. This is a major fraud that you've committed. He says, oh, look, okay, let's do it this way. You go and work for seven years. I'll sell you to some guy. And well, at the end of the seven years, you're free, and the debt is cancelled. But I will have got a tiny little bit back from you. And the guy is so up himself. He says, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. Just be patient, and I'll give it back to you. You think, like, you want to wring this bloke's neck. Like, don't you feel that the, your king, your lord, is being extremely generous to you? And even though he comes over as not very nice, and of course you can see the sort of person he is, because when he's let off, he goes and grabs by the throat his fellow servant. His master is moved with compassion and forgives him. Now all the stories of Jesus have this element of unreality, and this king is really unreal. He's moved with compassion to this guy. I wouldn't be. Uh, but on what basis does he think, oh, this, this poor guy, he really wants to, to, to pay it back, he's so sincere. I think, no, no, that the guy does not come over as sincere. He's moved with compassion. Uh, I think more in pity, in absolute pity, not because of his genuineness, but at the sad state of the man, that his pity at the man's petty pride, at his pathetic wriggling on the hook. And yet, this man, and this is the, the whole uh, kind of twist of the story, this man is us. This man whose repentance is not very sincere is the Duncan who, who prays to God several times per hour, oh God, please forgive me, I just did this. Oh God, I'm so sorry for doing that. And that's you as well. And if it's not you, you're not in touch with, with uh, quite honestly, with, with God's uh, righteousness, I, I would say. If you think you can go hour in, hour out, well, I did, I did nothing wrong. I, I'm such a good guy. Well, you know, you've got to come with Jesus Christ, quite honestly, uh, if, if you're still in that, uh, that mentality. Uh, so we who feel this so deeply, you know, that we keep on sinning. Well, why do we keep on sinning? Why don't you repent? Why don't you stop it? Because I'm weak. That's why. 
And if you say you have no sin, then you lie. You know. Um, so the king is moved with compassion to this guy. That guy is us because the whole point is that we are not to be like him now to go out and get the fellow servant and say, pay me what you owe. We are to really realize that we've not done the right thing and his grace has been so great. That's the point. Well, the king looses him, verse 27, and that uh, in the Greek seems to imply he was bound, which would again imply to me he, he'd been tied up as a criminal. This wasn't a case of a failed business where you end up with big debts. This is a guy who's done a big criminal case, and that is to steal this huge amount of money. That's my suggestion. In the end, in the end, we are, we, we have to come, I think, to forgiveness. We, in the end, have to realize that this is how I am, and therefore I must forgive others. And I think in the end, uh, spiritually minded people get to that point in the end. I think a sign of spiritual maturity is uh, a softening. So often this happens, that people in their younger years were so hard-lined against, oh, I can't break bread with divorcingly married people, I can't break bread with this, I can't fellowship this, that, and the other. But as they mature, they change. And that's very much the, uh, I think, the sort of chit-chat gossip uh, when, when our folks are together, say, after a meeting on a Sunday or at a Bible study or... I don't know, some social event, yeah, it's chit-chatting, oh yeah, Johnny, you know what, oh Johnny, oh yeah, I know Johnny, oh yeah, yeah, well Johnny, he, he's now up at the church at such and such, he's up there, yeah, but they've got a whole bunch of divorced and remarried people up there, there's old Bobby up there, he's been divorced five times, yeah, well Johnny's up there now, ah oh, yeah, so he's changed, how many times have you heard that, you know, that basic kind of conversation? Where someone's changed, it used to be hard line, come softer. Yeah. It's, over time, people tend to go that way, rather than, oh, you know what, so-and-so, oh, he's become all judgmental and harsh now. Yeah, I mean, there are some who go that way, but even they, by the end of their lives, I think typically change. And I don't think it's just that you get more sloppy as you get older, that's what the young Turks might say, uh, uh, you just get this getting sloppy as they get older. I think that this is genuinely the way of spiritual growth. But the point is, let's get there quicker. Now, the the generous king and lord uh, looses him and forgives him all the debt. Verse twenty-seven. Well, this is very much the language of the the release in the seventh year. I've said that the, the, the king kindly said to his servant, look, I'll sell you to another master and I'll get a bit of money. You and the, the law of Moses and serve them seven years and the seventh year you shall go free and you shall be released from the debt. And then he says, ah, okay, I'll do it now. I'll do it now. You haven't got to go for your seven years. I'll forgive you the whole thing now. In other words, we are to live in the spirit of the seventh year the spirit of release, especially the spirit of jubilee, uh, all the time. Not just wait for it to happen. And definitely the words that are used here, he forgave him the debt, he loosed him, forgave him the debt in 27. This is right out of Deuteronomy 15, which talks about how they were to, to let go their servants in the seventh year and cancel the debt that they had. And the king is saying, yeah, look, Okay, I won't sell you into that slavery. I'll imagine the seventh year has come, and I'll let you go now. In the end, if you're going to forgive somebody in the end, you might as well forgive them now, straight away. And again, that is true to observation in church life, is it not? That basically, if somebody hangs around long enough, they kind of get forgiven. They kind of get sort of let off, no matter pretty well what they've done. Now, if you're going to be like that, well, why not do it straight away? Well, why do you need this time, the seven years, as it were? And, of course, looking back at the, the reasoning that's behind that whole idea of the release at the end of seven years, it's all the time is rooted in the fact that you were in Egypt and I brought you out of 
uh, slavery there. I let you go from Egypt, uh, just as let my people go, uh, is the, the basis of you shall let your brother go in the seventh year. And likewise, Deuteronomy 15, verse 13, when you let him go, you shall not send him out empty-handed, but with gifts. Very same words in Exodus 3, 21, 22, about how when Israel were released from Egypt, they did not go out empty-handed. But as you know from Exodus 12, with all the, the gold and, and gifts of Egypt. So then, it is our own experience of release from Egypt, which is what is the basis, the core motivation for our release of others. Now, I, I think I've made the point here pretty clearly that the allusion is to the, the seventh year, and the, the king initially thinks, yeah, let's sell him to another servant, let him, uh, to another master, let him be there for seven years, then at the end we cancel the debt. And then he says, nah, I'll just let him go now. I, I mentioned that when we're looking at verse 21, Peter said, shall I forgive him until seven times? And I said that he's quoting there, until seven times, from Daniel 4.23, about until seven times have passed over Nebuchadnezzar. And I said that the, that the time there is really a year. Nebuchadnezzar was punished for seven, seven years. So there's a connection of thought there, very much so, that the Lord is saying to Peter, until seven times, until seven years, yeah, like Nebuchadnezzar, no, Peter, do it straight away. Do it straight away. And as I say, if you're going to forgive someone in the end after a period of time, do it now. Do it straight away, without any uh, attempt to analyze the extent of their forgiveness. By the way, in Jeremiah 34, you have this case where the seventh year of release had not been kept, and they're surrounded by the Babylonians, and Jeremiah says, look, release your brethren, release them out of debt, release them uh, out of being your, your slaves, and they do. And the Babylonians go away, and then they, they renege on their agreement, and they grab hold of their brethren and say, you're coming back into slavery. And then Jeremiah gives them this prophecy in Jeremiah 34, and he says, because that's what you've done, you're going into captivity as slaves in Babylon. You could argue that despite all their sins, the one thing that really tipped the balance, and that was the last straw with God, was their refusal to release their brethren. But that actually was what, in the end, led them to, to do this. They were led into captivity because of their refusal to really release their brethren. And it's the same with us. We shall go into condemnation unless you release your brethren. Now, this man was not sold to another master because he remains one of the servants. He's called one of the fellow servants. Uh, verse 28. And he's still got a certain amount of power because he lays hold on his fellow servant. And this is the Greek word for to arrest. He arrests his fellow servant and gets him thrown into prison. Put under guard, literally. Now, the very grace that has been shown to him is what actually, it seems, makes him so unpleasant. This is the, the tragedy. He went out, verse 28. He went out and found his fellow servant. And the language of going out is actually the language of condemnation. Judas went out. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Zedekiah went out. Um, those who leave the ecclesia go out after the pattern of Judas into the darkness. So the idea is that he condemned himself by his attitude to his fellow servant. And this is exactly what we have seen earlier in the chapter, that if you offend, if you make to stumble your brother by not forgiving him, by not accepting him, then you will be condemned. That's what the, the, the chapter is teaching. And so this fellow servant, he finds that his, the, the, the guy that he, uh, sorry, this first servant, he finds that the second servant whom he grabs hold of 
has exactly the same attitude to him as he had to the king. He falls down before him, he says the same words, he says, please be patient with me, uh, etc. It's absolutely the same, but he is not forgiving. So then, each time we encounter someone coming to us uh, who has wronged us, as we think, or owes us something, we are in this position. When the little ones came to the disciples, it was the same, really, as the first servant coming to the second servant, saying, look here, you owe me a hundred. Pay me what you owe. And he couldn't do that. And because of this, he was going to be eternally condemned. And the point is that all those people who have sinned against us have only sinned against us a fraction as we should feel it anyway, a fraction of how we have sinned against God. Now, it may be in the last day, when all, the, when all is said and done, that actually the guy that sinned against you sinned a lot more against you than, than what you sinned in your life. But that's not the point. The point is that when someone comes to us, and we, or we come to them, realizing that they have sinned against me, the point is that we are to recognize that their sin is a fraction compared to the sin which I feel towards God. Now, on this basis, uh, the base of the parable, you should forgive somebody anything. Because you've got such a huge debt that you've been forgiven. Therefore, you should forgive anything. That is the point without any question about repentance, because the, the guy, this guy, first guy in the parable, which is you and me, is forgiven even though his repentance is not very genuine. But instead he gets hold of the second servant and says, pay me what you owe. And he says, you can't, all right, I'm going to throw you into prison. Well, once he's put into prison, he definitely can't pay. There was a different attitude of his Lord who said to him, well, look, I'll sell you to another master and you will do your seven years uh, slavery uh, and then the debt will be cancelled. No, this guy throws the other fellow into prison. He puts him in a position where actually he can never, he can never put anything right. And this is what goes on all the time in church life. People are put in situations where they can never put anything right. There's another twist, possibly, to the story that what he meant by putting him in prison was that I believe you have got relatives and friends who can pay me to get you basically out of prison. And in other words, he's saying, you owe this to me, uh, but I will only forgive you if third parties come and bail you out. Depending on the attitude of third parties now, my attitude to you, whether or not I release you from prison, uh, it depends on that. And again, we see that so often. We will only fellowship you if you get right with X or Y. It's a terrible attitude to have, rather than recognizing that you are a huge sinner and you have no option but to forgive unconditionally. And you should be eager to do that. Well, when the fellow servants saw what was done, they go and tell their Lord. And we should be spending our time doing that because we see this happening all the time. That because people are not forgiven, therefore they stumble. This is so true. This has happened so often. It's so true to observation. Because someone is not forgiven, where are they tonight? They're not believers or they're switched off. Because there was a bust up in a church, maybe they did make a mistake, or maybe they forced the accused, or whatever, but they were not forgiven. Where are they? And, of course, the point is that those who have not forgiven them, according to this parable, will not be forgiven and shall eternally be condemned. Now, we have to give these words, I think, their, their true weight. He, this man did not have compassion, verse 33 when his Lord had had such compassion on him, compassion on his blindness, compassion on the fact that this guy totally miscalculated his debt. He didn't get it that he owed 10,000 talents. And he says, Alec, just 
patient now. Now just be a bit patient, Lord, and I'll pay every bit of it back to you. He has no sense of his debt. And yet the Lord had compassion on this guy because he didn't get it. Just felt sorry for him. Now, if people don't calculate or miscalculate the extent of their debt to us, okay, so do you and I, colossally, before the Lord. His compassion on those who simply don't get it has got to be ours. Now, in the end, he says, verse 34, The Lord was angry and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Well, how come? How, by being tormented, could he ever pay? I don't think that's the idea. I think, instead, the Lord is uh, judging him according to his own words. Remember Luke 19.22, Out of your own mouth will I judge you. That people will be judged according to their own words. And, of course, this, this man, this uh, first servant, uh, had... Had, had claimed to be able to pay all, verse 29. I can pay you everything. So it's as if the words are being quoted back to him. Not that by being tormented he could pay everything. But rather his words are quoted back to him. Okay, you think you can pay all? You think there wasn't a big debt? Okay. Then pay it. And we have to face it, that our words that we utter within the context of all these uh, issues and discussions in our own minds, in our own hearts, with our partners, with small groups and ecclesias and churches and fellowships, etc., that our thoughts are known to the Lord. And in the end, the attitudes which we have, the words that we speak to ourselves and in our hearts, will be the basis for our own eternal judgment.